Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time and the opportunity for us to gather and once again uh, join upon all the other generations that have come before us and sung of your relentless grace. God, the, the, the many different opportunities that we've had to celebrate already this morning that you are the one that makes ways for us. You're a light in the darkness um, that we get to celebrate and rest in your goodness. Father, that there are so many different reasons for us to sing and to trust in you. And so we pray that once again we would be reminded of that incredible grace in a manner this morning that would strengthen our faith and equip us to not even just embrace this moment, but all the moments that await us in the rest of our lives to be people who will live by faith. We thank you for this opportunity, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. So this past week, uh, our nation, along with what seems to be the majority of other nations around the world, have had the opportunity to kind of see these tragic events unfold in Ukraine and have been confronted with uh, some pretty challenging realities of um, what our world is currently facing and some questions of what the future might hold, and we've definitely seen it as the front and center of pretty much all news reports and news stations that are on. And I'm curious how it's impacted you this week. I wonder how you've processed it and, and how you've responded to it. Uh, and I would imagine that there's probably a variety of different answers to that question. I'm sure some of us have really engrossed ourselves in it, right, like just Dove in deep into it and, and consuming as much information as we can, reading as much as we can, following the developments um, pretty much nonstop. Others maybe have created a certain distance, right, that it's, it's something that we're either not interested in or too bothered by that we try to remove ourselves from it. And, and so there's a variety of different ways that we encounter and try to discern what to make of these, these events. And as a result, depending on how you respond to it, it likely also influences kind of the emotions that you've experienced over the last week or so. For some of us, it's been disregard, maybe a level of indifference as we try to insulate ourselves from it. Maybe others, it's fear, uh, the concerns that can come when you see that level of, of unrest in our world and the implications that could follow. Maybe others have responded with anger, hostility. There's a variety of different emotions. And so I'm curious what has been yours and how it shaped and impacted your week. I can tell you for me, um, it's, it's had an impact on me, obviously, but one of the reasons is because of my just default personality. And I've shared this with you before, but a lot of times what I do is that when I encounter certain things in life, challenges or obstacles, uh, my default is to immediately imagine the worst case scenario. It makes me a joy to live with. Um, but I really in internalize that more than I vocalize it, but I really do. I, I anticipate the worst case scenario and then I try to figure out a solution. Because in my mind, if I can solve the worst case scenario, then any other scenario is also something that we could handle. And so that's usually where my mind goes and in most situations, even if they're difficult, that's, that's not too disturbing or concerning. It can be unsettling. But when you turn on the news and you see a global nuclear power invading Eastern Europe with threats that could extend to the rest of the world, when you start thinking through worst-case scenarios, it can be pretty unsettling and terrifying. And so that's kind of where my brain has gone, has begun to process, is, is 
how would we respond if this escalated? What, what would it look like if, if things progressed to a very catastrophic state? Questions like, is this the plan for our generation? To live through the next world war? Like, is that on the horizon for us? And if so, how would we navigate that? What would that look like? How do you live by faith in today's context? That was really the question that I kept wrestling with throughout the week, and I'm sure many of you to a certain extent have wrestled with it as well. At the very least, thinking through those scenarios. And so that's kind of the question I want us to answer today. What does it look like to live by faith in today's context? And when you think about these recent events with what we've seen transpire in Ukraine and all the questions that are accompanying it, a couple of things that I would say from the very beginning for our discussion today, which is to first evaluate what is your hope, right? To live by faith means that you're trusting in, putting your faith in something. It's got to be tethered to hope. And so what is your hope? And It's a great opportunity to remind all of us today that at the end of the day, the very essence of the gospel is a hope in the resurrection from the dead. Like, that's it. That's, That's what we really believe. That Christ was raised, and with that comes the hope that we are set free from sin and death, and we await the resurrection of the dead. Now, if we really believe that, then death is not to be feared, period. Now, we may have preferences in how we encounter it, right? And we may sit there and and wish for meeting death at a fine old age that comes and gets us in our sleep after we've seen our children and grandchildren grow old. It might be our preference, especially when compared to some of the other scenarios that can confront people when you start thinking about wars and rumors of wars. But regardless of how it finds us, we shouldn't fear it. Because our hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Our hope is not in a global economy. Our hope is not in a U.S. foreign policy. Our hope is in Jesus. Right? And so you start with that basic premise. But at the same time, what we have to recognize is that to live by faith is so much more than just waiting for heaven. It's so much bigger than just not fearing death, right? When we spent the entire year last year with this theme on fix your eyes on Jesus, we used Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 as kind of an introduction to that theme. And if you can remember that text, it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And what we realize is that Jesus is the perfect example of faith. He he is the model of what it looks like to live by faith. Living by faith is more than just waiting for heaven. It's understanding what it means to follow a suffering servant. Living by faith is to live as Christ. And so what does that look like? It's a worthy question. It's a critical question, and not not just because of what we're seeing transpire in the world, because it's the essence of following Jesus, and in many respects, it's the essence of what we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of the series. It's one of the dominant themes 
of this letter to the church in Rome. I want us to be uh, reminded of this theme this morning. You can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1 as we continue along in this introduction and encounter this theme of what it means to live by faith. If you think through the first 17 verses as a bit of an introduction to this letter, Paul covers a lot of those introductory elements. Who's writing? Who's receiving this letter? We had an opportunity to talk about the promises of God that Paul accentuates, and then last week an opportunity to also see just the pastoral tone of this letter by talking about gospel community and what that looks like. And now that he's kind of gone through all those introductory elements, he gets to the concluding part of his introduction before he really launches into the meat of the rest of the letter. And here, at the concluding part of this introduction, verses 16 and 17, we have this theme, dominant theme that sets the tone for everything else that transpires. And it speaks to the question we presented one another this morning. Let's, let's take a look and read it together. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's a great two verses. Not only is it two of the most identifiable identifiable verses in the letter to the church in Rome, you could argue it's some of the most identifiable passages in the entire New Testament. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And just in these two verses that is cram-packed with so much content that could really drive entire sermons and sermon series. Like we could spend all of our time just unpacking those first seven words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And what that means to live with that boldness and that courage We could spend a lot of time, develop whole sermon series based on the power of God and the salvation that is offered to everyone who believes, all that comes with that statement. We could could talk at length about the righteousness of God that is revealed, the complexity of what it means between Jews and Gentiles and how that works in God's sovereign plan. So many things in just these two verses that we can't even begin to attempt to cover exhaustively today. And we'll revisit them as we go through the course of this letter. But the, the part of this introduction that obviously just kind of resonated with me is this past week was the way it concludes there in verse 17. The righteous will live by faith. What does that look like today? What does that look like for us to live by faith? And in, in order to answer that question, while we can't address exhaustively everything that precedes it in verse 16 and 17, we at least need to acknowledge a bit of the context, right? That when Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel, that word ashamed is not referencing just a pure embarrassment. It's more than just saying, well, I'm not really shy about the gospel, I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. That word ashamed means uh, literally to have a misplaced confidence, or false assumptions, And so in some ways, what Paul is really saying when he says, I'm not ashamed, is he's saying, I am confident in this. Believe it fully. This is not a false assumption. I haven't misplaced my confidence. I believe in my heart of hearts what this gospel proclaims. And what is this gospel? Let's let's not run past that this morning, right? It's the essence of why we gather. This good news that, that reminds us that we are all dealing with brokenness, we're all dealing with sin, And we experience that brokenness within our hearts and the world around us. And we're constantly trying to fix it. We run to all these other solutions that we think can 
heal and, and give fulfillment and meaning and purpose. So we'll run to money, we'll put our investment in careers and our families and all these things that could be noble or ignoble but ultimately fall short. And what the gospel says is that we have a loving God who sees us in that broken state and because he's rich in mercy, he refuses to leave us there. So he takes on flesh and he dwells among us in the person of Jesus, the perfecter of living by faith. And this Jesus, and what he does, what, what he demonstrates is compassion, he demonstrates healing, he demonstrates authority, he demonstrates power, and he accentuates the plan of God by offering his life as a sacrifice on the cross. And that in that sacrifice, the blood that he sheds brings forgiveness, brings relentless grace. That we are then in that moment, all of our sin is taken from us and he gives us all of his righteousness. And so the reason that we can say the righteous live by faith is not by our own merit, but by the righteousness of Christ. And yet the gospel goes so much further than just Jesus died for my sins because three days after that incredible sacrifice, he is resurrected from the dead, comes back to life, and empties the tomb of its power and gives us that fundamental hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's the good news. That if you would actually turn from all these, these impulses and trying to fix your own life, but actually believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah, that God raised him from the dead, you follow him and you give your life to him, that you will be restored to a right relationship with God the Father, being known as sons and daughters. That's the gospel. Now, the mistake that we can often make when we encounter this message, even when we commit our lives to this message, is that we then equate this power of God, this, this gospel that is the power of God, that is salvation for all those who believe, as Paul describes it in Romans 16, is we limit that salvation and that good news to soul-saving. Right, so like, like what it is, is it's just for me and my soul to find forgiveness and for me to get to heaven. And that's really too small of an understanding of salvation. From a biblical standpoint, the salvation that is being offered here through this good news speaks more to wholeness and soundness. Right, what we believe is that all things will be made new. Everything that's been marred by sin will be restored. All of creation. That's the hope. Right? So what, what it tells us is that, yes, you're going to go through life, and there are going to be moments where you are undone by your personal sin and shame, and then there are going to be other moments where you're just undone by sin, sin around you. There are going to be moments where you're overwhelmed by the way that flesh and spirit can be at war within yourself, and then there are going to be days where we're just overwhelmed by war. And so the salvation that is offered to those who believe is not just your sins are forgiven, it's one day wars will cease. That's the hope. That's the faith by which the righteous live by. That's the gospel. That's the unwavering confidence that Paul is speaking to here. And so what we are doing here is longing for that day. Right? We're, we're looking to that moment where all things are made new, when all things are restored, where war is no more. That is the anchor of our hope. And so the question that, 
inevitably emerges is, well, when will that happen? When will that take place? And the reality is, is that we don't know. The only thing we can be sure of, and I, I can guarantee you this, we are closer to it today than we were yesterday. So we're trending that direction, I guess is what I would tell you. That's the direction that we're headed. That moment when all things will be restored and made new. And so to live by faith is to figure out how do I navigate this journey until that moment arrives? What will I anticipate? What will we encounter? How will we know when that moment is coming? That's the very same question that Jesus' disciples asked him. He said, how will we know when the Son of Man is coming? How will we know these signs of the end of the age? And I think Jesus' answer to that question really gives us some great insight as to how we could be able to live by faith in our context. His answer comes from Matthew 24. You, you can turn there if you want. We're going to have it on the screens. But in Matthew 24, Jesus is presented with this very same question. What are the signs? And when you think about that question, the way that Jesus answered it is he's about to describe what this journey is going to look like for those who believe, those who wait, those who are longing for that day when all is made new. And so when we hear this description, when we hear how Jesus answers the question, it really helps us understand how we can live by faith. Matthew 24, starting in verse 4, here is how Jesus responds. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to the persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of, must, of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, this is just the beginning of Jesus' discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. We don't have time to go through everything else that he says, but I think even just the way he initially answers the question helps us wrestle with the question today. What's this journey look like in which we have to figure out what it means to live by faith as we wait for that hope to be fulfilled? There's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be persecution. And we can look at all those things and, and try to discern to what extent will they impact us? Maybe it'll happen remotely from a distance. Maybe persecution is only reserved for other countries and believers in other parts of the world, but maybe not. It may happen here. It could happen next. The point is, this is the trajectory, right? If you read Jesus' words, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's just the reality. And we've seen it proven to be true. Like I, was, I was curious about this just in general. I, I like history. And so I got online and looked at Britannica.com to, to try to get a sense of what has been documented for wars that have transpired in the course of human history. 
And if you look at the timeline that they have, and I don't know to the extent that they've got everything documented, but I still think it, it holds true, that in the last 300 years alone, we have seen more wars combined than the rest of the entire human history before it. So if you just look at the timeline of human history and chart how many wars we've seen take place on this planet, it's just doing this. It's just going up. This is the environment within which we have to live. Right? It, this is the context where you and I have to figure out what does it mean to live by faith. Maybe things don't escalate, maybe they do. How is the church supposed to respond? How are we supposed to respond when we know this is the inevitable journey that we're on? It's going to be filled with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and persecution. While I love what Jesus says in the middle of it, while he gives us a healthy dose of reality of what we can expect, he also gives us some very powerful words of what it looks like to live by faith in that context. You know what the first one was he said there? Don't be alarmed. I love that. And the fact that it is coming from our Savior gives me such an incredible sense of comfort. Almost like a father or a mother trying to talk to their child about a storm that's coming. Yes, there's going to be rain. Yes, there's going to be thunder and lightning. Don't be alarmed. I'm here with you. And that's what Jesus says. Yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna get bad. You're gonna see war. You're gonna see rumors of, you're gonna see earthquake. You're gonna see all these terrible things. Don't be alarmed. That's our first response. Alarmed could also be translated as troubled. Right? And so the way I interpret that for, for our application is it's more than just don't be surprised. Can you be concerned about what we're seeing? Can we be saddened about what we're seeing? Absolutely. Don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Death has won, has been defeated. Right? There, there is no war that can break out in this world that is greater than the gospel in which we believe. Don't be troubled. And so when we think about how we react to these moments and these news reports and what we say in our conversations, the church should present a posture of those who are not alarmed, who are not troubled, because our hope is greater. That's number one. Second thing that I love that Jesus offers here, we, we, we kind of see it as a warning almost a description of what not to do. He says, because of this, many will be deceived. They will actually turn away from the faith and they will give into betrayal and hatred. And I think that's pretty evident in our world today as well. That a lot of times the response that we see circling around us is a response of betrayal and hatred, distrust, antagonism, hostility. That's the description of those who have turned away from the faith. What I love as this description, he says, some of them, because they've been deceived, have let their love grow cold. And in that, I think we find a wonderful word of instruction of what it means to live by faith in this context. Not only are you not to be alarmed, don't let your love grow cold. <laughs> Keep loving. Right? Don't let it grow cold. Don't give in to betrayal. Don't give in to hatred. 
if there was ever a time for the church to demonstrate a voice of love, it's, it's this time, it's this context. Stand with the hurting, stand with the oppressed. Don't let your love grow cold. Continue to love fiercely. As we talk about over and over in here, we should demonstrate an unyielding love for the neighbor. That's how you live by faith. Don't let your love grow cold. And he accompanies that with the final word of instruction that I think we can glean for today, which is stand firm. Don't be alarmed. Don't let your love grow cold. Stand firm. Understand that this gospel is sufficient. Understand the fullness of the salvation that is truly offered to us in this gospel and stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now understand that this is not a misplaced confidence. This is the power of God upon which we are standing. So stand firm. It's beautiful, beautiful reminders. And so as I've processed all the different things that we've seen and anticipated all these different scenarios, I found tremendous comfort in the words of our Savior that I would love to encourage you with this morning. How do we respond? How do we live by faith in this moment? Don't be alarmed. Don't let your love grow cold. Stand firm. And as, as beautiful as that sounds, and as encouraging as it is to hear them from our Savior, there is still a question of, okay, but what does that look like? And in order to answer that question, I really felt like perhaps the best way to explore it would be through the word of testimony. To look back, both past and present, upon brothers and sisters and other saints who have also been able to live by faith in times like these, who can demonstrate with their own lives what it means to be unashamed of the gospel, to trust that it is the salvation for all those who believe, to understand what it means to live by faith, that weren't alarmed, that didn't let their love grow cold, but stood firm. And so at the front end of the week, as I was thinking through this, I started thinking about who do we have in church history that have gone before us and lived in times of global crisis and war and have demonstrated what it means to live by faith. And it wasn't too long before I came across the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is somebody that I was familiar with, knew the general story, but I'll admit I had never really looked in his life in great detail. But I did this week, and the more I read up about his story and his testimony, the more I was just encouraged by the fact that he fully really does demonstrate in so many levels what it means to live by faith and gives us a really powerful picture. So just to summarize a little bit of his story and his testimony for you this morning that I hope encourages you. He was born in 1906, and uh, after about six years, uh, his family moved to Berlin. And so if you think about his trajectory and his, his stage of life, he grew up and entered into adulthood at the same time that Hitler rose to power and, and Nazi Germany developed. And so he was in a tremendously tumultuous time. He, he was born into somewhat of an affluent family that encouraged their kids to engage the arts and to literature and things of that nature. And they all thought he was going to be a, a pianist. He was a gifted musician. But at the age of 14, he declared to his family that he had a call and a desire to pursue theology and ministry, which shocked everyone in the family. But really from 14 on, that was his pursuit. 
And, and so part of what developed is that as he began to study, not just in seminary, but then even uh, served as, as an associate pastor for a German church in Spain, even spent some time in the U.S. for a little bit at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and then came back and really began to invest in his ministry in Germany, he quickly developed as one of the leading theologians of the day. And in part of his points of emphasis, if you go back and read through some of his works and his lectures, was really his, his frustration with the church at the time and the way that it had really kind of bought into what he calls cheap grace, right? That it had lost sight of what it was really supposed to do. And, and a lot of that was manifesting itself as Hitler rose to power and the church lost a sense of how to appropriately respond. Let me give you a sample of what he was encountering as he was developing in his own ministry and life. A quote that comes from a German pastor at that time by the name of Hermann Gruner is quoted as saying, the time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God, the helper and redeemer has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. That's what he was hearing and encountering. That's what he was combating, a, a heretical, idolatrous teaching. And he said that the reason the church was following it so willingly is because they had bought into a cheap grace. They had lost sight of what the gospel was really about. And so he began to, to speak adamantly against it, and as he did, he faced increasing pressure to the point that he was ultimately silenced and not allowed to speak publicly. He had to begin to teach an underground seminary that only lasted for a little bit. And he also began to actually wrestle with how he could begin to combat the rise of evil that was taking place in this country. He joined a group in particular that was tasked and, and consistently committed to evacuating Jews from Germany and even helping orchestrate plots to usurp and potentially assassinate Hitler. And so the more he began to engage in those activities, the more the pressures began to mount and the threats on his life continued to intensify and increase to that at one point he actually decides to flee and go to America. He escapes it. He escapes the, the pressure and the concern. He arrives in America and after one month, he is so weighed down by the guilt of leaving. He says he's got to go back. He says, I have no part in reshaping the reconstruction of our faith if I leave in our time of crisis. So he actually steps back into that adversity and that hardship. That's what he was beginning to realize it meant to live by faith, to not be alarmed, to not let his love grow cold, that he had to stand with those people. In fact, he articulated the spirit with which he made this decision in a letter that he wrote his fiance that I think is really beautifully stated. He said, God's grace and kindness calls us to faith, and I do not mean a faith which flees the world, but one that endures the world and which loves and remains true to the world in spite of all the suffering which it contains for us. <laughs> he stepped into that moment, chose not to flee or run because he knew that's what it means to live by faith. And so as he continued to minister and, and navigate those realities, he eventually was arrested and thrown in prison, I think around 1943, where he ultimately spent around two and a half years, two and a half years in prison. And while he was there, 
he actually had opportunities to escape, which he refused. And he refused them because he was fearful of the repercussions it would cause on his brother who was also in prison and his other family members. So for their benefit, he stayed in prison, living by faith. (laughs) And as he began to endure that sort of experience, the time had come where he and several fellow prisoners were taken to an extermination camp in a Bavarian village not too far. And the last few chapters that we have of his life actually come from a fellow prisoner that was a British intelligence officer by the name of, of um, Payne Best. And he, he writes a book that details a lot of these final moments of Bonhoeffer's life. And one particular moment that he captures is uh, on April 8th, they, they gather Bonhoeffer and these prisoners into a little schoolhouse it kind of serves as a little bit of a holding area, and they all know what's coming next. So imagine that for a moment. Imagine being ushered into that kind of a room, knowing what fate awaits you and everyone else in that room. And the rest of the prisoners looked to Bonhoeffer, and they said, would you lead us in a time of prayer? And he did. Drawing upon the words of Isaiah and the description of Jesus as a suffering servant. And Best describes this in his book. He says, He reached the hearts of all, finding just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions which it had brought. So even to that point, he's living by faith and showing people a hope of the gospel. As he's leading the people through this time of prayer, two men walk in, rest dressed in civilian clothes that are members of the Gestapo, and they they pull Bonhoeffer out. And he was overheard saying to one of his other fellow prisoners and good friends, Bishop Bell, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. And they take him away. So on April 9th, he is ultimately hanged with several other prisoners. And the doctor that was entrusted with overseeing the executions, also has written about what he observed in Bonhoeffer on that day. He said, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. (laughs) That's living by faith. That is the personification of encountering crisis and adversity and hardship and not being alarmed and not letting your love grow cold and standing firm. And not only do you see that just so beautifully exemplified in his life, and one of my favorite descriptions of what you see with But the testimony of Bonhoeffer comes from the the author of his biography who says, the witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer began with the attempt to live and say what it is to be with Christ, and it ended with teaching what it is that Christ is with us. And that becomes a critical shift in our thinking. Perhaps the key to understanding how do I 
not become alarmed? How do I not let my love grow cold? How do I stand firm and live by faith? Because it's so much more than realizing what it is to live with Christ, but understanding Christ is with us. And that's what his story tells. I'm reading these details of Bonhoeffer's life, and I'm so moved, and I'm so inspired. And as I'm processing it all, we start getting reports this week of other brothers and sisters, other saints, in a current crisis, demonstrating a similar faith. In fact, there was this one article that I'll close us with today that I'm sure many of you saw or or several of you have probably read, but just in case you haven't, I wanted to read it to us this morning. An article that speaks to what we're seeing from some of our fellow brothers and sisters in Ukraine. This was written by uh, a man by the name of Vasil Ostry. He is a pastor at a church in Ukraine, and he is also a professor of student ministry at the Theological Seminary in Kiev. And he writes this article, and it's titled, To Stay and Serve, Why We Didn't Flee Ukraine. We'll read it to you. He says, in recent days, the events from the book of Esther have become real to us in Ukraine. It's as if the decree is signed and Haman has the license to destroy an entire nation. The gallows are ready. Ukraine is simply waiting. Can you imagine the mood in a society when gradually, day after day for months, the world's media has been saying that war is inevitable and that much blood will be shed? In recent weeks, nearly all the missionaries have been told to leave Ukraine. Western nations evacuated their embassies and citizens. Traffic in the capital of Kyiv is disappearing. Where did the people go? Oligarchs, businessmen, and those who can afford it are leaving, saving their families from potential war. Should we do the same? My wife and I have decided to remain in our city near Kyiv. We want to serve the people here along with our church, the church where I joined as the pastoral team in 2016. In anticipation of coming disaster, we've bought a supply of food, medicine, and fuel so that, if necessary, we'll be able to help those in need rather than burden them. Ours is a family of six. We're raising four daughters. What I worry about the most is my 16-year-old who travels to college every day for an hour and a half one way by public transportation. The media is warned that if Russia invades, mobile communications will be lost, public transit will likely collapse, so thankfully her classes have gone online for now. Since the border within Belarus is only 92 miles from Kyiv, one of the possible options for an enemy attack is through Belarus. The local media is recommending that we pack an emergency suitcase. So I told my children, pack your backpacks, pack enough things for three days. In the past, such packing meant we were going on vacation for a fun trip. So our younger children, six and eight, have been asking, Dad, where are we going? And at first I didn't know what to answer. I told them we're not going anywhere. How should the church respond when there is a growing threat of war? When there's constant fear in society? I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. As a country, we went through this already in 2014, and in the end, churches that distanced themselves from social issues and those that supported the corrupt rulers have suffered reputational losses among the population of Ukraine, 
But conversely, churches that have been with the people during times of testing have received the highest trust from society. We believe the church is a place of struggle. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to bring our requests to God. And for three days in a row, the lights were turned off in the city. We were forced to meet in the dark, adding a solemn atmosphere to our prayers for peace. At the end of the week, those moments produced in us an inner strength to persevere. Through communal prayer, we've gained confidence and peace. We believe God is with us. And that is the most important thing. During this critical moment, our church, which has about a thousand people attending on a normal Sunday, is now a place of service. We've recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, how to stop bleeding, apply bandages, manage airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. In fact, when I first announced to the first aid training, one brother told me, now I know why I need to stay in Ukraine. He had planned to leave. He knew he was not a soldier. He wasn't able to take, arms up, take up arms and fight. But he now wants to stay to help the wounded and save lives. If necessary, the church premises can be turned into a shelter. We have a good basement. We're ready to deploy a heating station as well as provide a place for a military hospital. To make this a reality, we're creating response tents. And if martial law is declared... Teams will be ready with a strategic supply of fuel, food, and material for dressing wounds. We even gathered information on who in the church are doctors, mechanics, plumbers, even who has wells in case of water shortage. We've decided to stay, both as a family and as a church. And when this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. While the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in the struggle. We shelter the weak, we serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. While we may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis, we can pray like Esther. Ukraine is not God's covenant people like Israel. Our hope is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. That's living by faith. Not alarmed, not growing cold in their love, standing firm. And as I read those stories and many others like it, it encouraged me, it humbled me, and reminded me of this relentless grace that we have in this gospel. And so regardless of whatever scenario plays out for us, may we learn from the testimonies of our brothers and sisters who are facing a current situation far greater than anything we face, but are trusting that the gospel is greater still. May we learn from them what it means to not be alarmed, to not let our love grow cold, to stand firm so that when we leave here today and whatever awaits us on the other side of those doors and awaits us on the other side of this week, we could be a people that are unashamed of this gospel because we know it is the power of God that brings salvation for all who believe. 
It is the righteousness of God that is revealed. A righteousness that calls us to live by faith. To live as Christ because we know Christ is with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. And this morning we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, in Russia, in Eastern Europe, and truthfully all over the world that are impacted by not only these current threats, but the many additional threats that we are unaware of. God, that collectively, whether it's for our brothers and sisters abroad or for even those of us that have gathered in this room today, that your church could rise up and demonstrate once again what it means to live like Christ. Father, that you would settle our nerves in a way that allows our hearts to not be troubled because we know that you are sovereign over all. God, may we never give way towards hatred and betrayal. May our love never grow cold, but may it be vibrant and shine brilliantly in the darkness. Let us not be deceived. Let us not be led astray. Let us stand firm. Let nothing move us, God. Let us join the chorus of so many others that have gone before us and are singing now. And let us live by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.